1: Hello and welcome to today's podcast with me, Patricia Devlin. Today's guest is a former undercover police officer turned crime author. Stephen Bentley now spends his time writing about crime instead of investigating it. You're very welcome, Stephen. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure to meet you at last. We'll be mostly talking about your new book, which will be of huge interest to people, um, not only in Northern Ireland, but further afield those who are interested into the workings of undercover police and also the workings of criminal gangs and your book operation george which i have here i have a lovely copy and i've read it and it's about how undercover police in the uk took down LVF terrorist Jim Fulton and it's a fascinating story it's a fascinating insight into how police took the time to really make sure they had the evidence to have Jim Fulton who was a very dangerous individual jailed. Before we start on Operation George we will speak about your background Stephen and I mean it's absolutely fascinating You were involved in in an operation called Operation Julie in the 1970s and that involved more than 800 police officers from 11 forces. It smashed two LSD production and distribution centres in Wales and it was one of the biggest undercover policing operations at that time.
2: Yes, it was. Um, It's still billed as the... uh as the uk's biggest drugs bust and uh, and um, it, it never seems to go away although it happened in the 1970s it, it it still crops up in my life i mean it was a big part in, of, of my life but it still crops up i'll give you an example patricia only recently a, a guy that runs a, a podcast called uh, talking with the hippies he, uh, he, he contacted me, and he'd read my book, the Operation Julie book, and he was quite fascinated by it. And he had some reservations about talking to a former undercover cop, but we got on fine, and, and in the end, he said, well, you're actually quite a nice guy. You don't think of you as an undercover cop anymore. But, yeah, um, that was my... Really, that was my first venture into into writing books, and, and it's done very well. In fact, it's... Uh, it's now option for an eight-part TV series and hopefully we can get some good news about uh, uh, um, a broadcaster picking it up. It's actually in development right now. There's a script and, and all the rest of it. So uh, hopefully good news sometime this year.
1: That's brilliant news and it, it will be an excellent TV drama or even a film, Stephen. Um, I'm going to show people... You undercover during Operation Julie?
2: That is indeed me. And if anybody reads the book, uh, they will, the Operation Julie book, they'll realize that that is the day when I was absolutely, totally stoned, off my head completely. <laughs> uh, not just stoned through whatever it was I was smoking, but uh, I'd had a lot to drink that day as well. That was the day we moved a piano for some hippie guy, and, uh, and I fell out of the van. As we were moving it, and ended up in a field next to a bull. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, that were great days. That were yeah. That's me. A lot more hair and uh, uh, and etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Much younger.
1: You, you looked the part. So, c- can you tell me how you became involved? Uh, you know, when did you join the police, Stephen? And how quickly did you move from ordinary policing to undercover policing?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, right, I joined the police uh, b- way back now in 1966. Yeah, 1966, and uh, I did my two years probation, like most coppers, and uh, that was mandatory. And uh, I was lucky, really, uh, even during my first two years as a uniform copper in my probationary period. You know, I'd shown an aptitude for. Uh, for crime and catching criminals and uh, so at, at the tender tender age of 21 I was on CID and, uh, and that was on Merseyside a, a place called uh, Kirby near Liverpool and I was on CID at Kirby and uh, and then went on to the uh, the task force CID in, in, in Lancashire where we were investigating uh murders and other serious crimes we were kind of drafted in to help the local cid and um so i spent in total uh i was 14 years on, on cid in total um and then i transferred from from merseyside to hampshire and that's when i got drafted into uh, operation julie and uh, um, i must correct you on one thing that yeah, there were eight hundred police officers involved, but but they were involved in the bus at the end of Operation Julie. There were actually twenty-five of us on the undercover police team, the Operation Julie undercover police team, which lasted for two years. The inquiries lasted for two years. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's me in a in a nutshell. And, and uh, I don't, know, as you as you already know, because you've already done research. Once I left the police force, then I. I I was doing various jobs and eventually uh, trained as a, a as a got, got a law degree and, and uh, I eventually trained as a barrister and practiced criminal law as a barrister in uh, in London and the provinces in England um, for another for another fourteen year period. Funny enough, so almost thirty years in law enforcement, one way or another. Yeah. So
1: yeah.
2: yeah, quite a varied career. I I, I had to write in books
1: (laughs) what I know what a life and what did you enjoy more the undercover place work or did you enjoy the the barrister role more
2: oh that's a good question it's a tough one to answer I think I enjoyed both because it was what I was doing at that particular time and I enjoyed them it's very difficult to compare one to another because they're very different lives very different roles completely Um, a very difficult question to ask but what I would say in in, in an attempt to give you a very straight answer is that um, my role as an undercover police officer where I adopted a a completely different false identity and infiltrated mixed with these drug dealers I got very close to one of the drug dealers in particular a, a character called Smiles which are I mention in the book and uh, you know I did I got very very close to him and it affected me uh, and uh, um, you know at one time I was even very tempted to sort of spill the beans to him you know that's how close I'd become to him I didn't uh, that's how, how close I'd become to him and uh, so you know from a personal point of view it, it had personal there was an aftermath you know there were there were personal ramifications for me adopting this dual personality this dual role so that part i didn't enjoy the part i did enjoy because i was a young man i was 29 30 at the time was the adrenaline kick you know the adrenaline rush and obviously you know, i enjoyed that uh, and one of my heroes from uh from uh, films and books i read the book and saw the movie about three times was frank serpico you know in the in the movie in the book called serpico the new york cop you know <laughs> and, you know it before i ever became an undercover police officer i thought oh frank Ser- serpico you know he was one of my he- heroes so it was all that adrenaline rush which which was great at the time but it did have a, a personal cost to me uh, and uh, you know which which was instrumental in me leaving the police force in 1980 and uh, then I was drifting around doing all the various jobs—sales, driving lorries, driving trucks—for almost ten years until I went back to school and uh, and got a law degree, and then qualified as a barrister. So, uh, yeah, quite a varied
1: background. Very, 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 Stephen. I think a lot of people would like to know what you know. You did you have a family when you began undercover police work? Because I mean, if you have a family, and I don't know if you have children or if you had children or you know undercover police officers who do have children, how on earth would you balance that with a double life? How would you, you know, when would you get to see them? Um, Is it hard keeping up this other identity? Um, Those little things always fascinated me about how hard it must be to go undercover.
2: That that part of it was very difficult. Yes, I did have a family and... uh... It was very difficult because I was away from them for long periods of time and my appearance changed dramatically. You know, you, you showed the picture of me when I was undercover as a as a hippie type character. And uh, it wasn't just my appearance that changed because of the nature of the job. I think my demeanor changed as well. So we I mean, got to a stage where, where, where to be quite frank, You know, I I went home for a couple of days, three days to get away from the scene where I was working. But I was glad to get out again, you know, to get back to the scene, to get back to where I was deployed. And uh, because, you know, my life was, personal life was in turmoil, really. So it's very, very difficult, you know. And and I mustn't forget, mustn't forget, must stress the other book, uh, uh, which deals with, uh, William James Fulton who you've already mentioned uh, was co-written with another former undercover officer using the pseudonym Mark Dickens and uh, you know, I've spoken to Mark obviously on many many occasions uh, when we were writing the book in particular I, I know from him as well that the uh, you know the stress on, on home life and being away from your home and your family is is very difficult to deal with but uh, you know it's the job that you do and you you've just got to get on and do it you know it's it's,
1: and you also had to take drugs Stephen because you were infiltrating a drugs gang and you had to make it look like you were one of them so I mean how did you feel about that
2: I, I did um I did and uh you know it's um when you say I had to take drugs, nobody forced me to. But, I, I, you know, I agree with what you say. I was mixing with drug dealers and people who were heavy users of drugs, mainly, mainly cannabis. Uh, uh, fortunately, a lot of them also used uh, acid, LSD a lot. But fortunately, uh, in the drug world, nobody forces you to take LSD, and I never, ever took it so i never experienced it and never wanted to but uh, cannabis smoking cannabis not just in a joint but using pipes bonds you know and taking really big doses of cannabis in, in one go so much so that it makes you hallucinate you know that was part of my undercover life and i just had to get used to it and then another stage came along where uh, people were involved with cocaine and, and co- cocaine was laid out on the glass table in front of me I was invited to take it, you know to snort it. And I'm going well hell what you do you know you know I'm supposed to be one of them I was supposed to be kind of a, a drug dealer and posing as a drug dealer and all the rest of it so you know I, I had to use it and um, you know it makes me laugh at the modern in the modern era um, the College of Policing in England now say that an undercover officer, under no circumstances, must use drugs, you know, because, it, and if they do, they could be subjected to A, disciplinary pr- proceedings and B, possibly criminal proceedings. Well, I personally think that's a nonsense because I can't see how you can mix with a certain type of person who is using drugs and not get away with. with we partaking, with going along with the whole scenario, but that's my view, and perhaps I'm wrong, but uh, uh, nobody will change my point of view on that. Yeah, I,
1: I, I, I would find it hard to believe that anybody can infiltrate these gangs and, I mean, not take drugs, that's, that's what they do. They're going to be suspicious of anybody's coming in. Was your cover almost blown at any stage? Did you feel you know they may have suspected that you were undercover at, at any point
2: well, you know, many a time the, the character smiles that uh, we were briefed to get close to and we did get close to i mean my undercover partner eric ended up babysitting for smiles one night so that was a, a, a that's an indication of you know how much smiles and his wife trusted us or, or, or trusted eric to babysit for them while smiles his wife and a few others we went out for a meal Uh, A Chinese meal uh, a few miles away and um, smiles was a very suspicious character you know he was a although he lived in Wales in a very rural part of Wales where we were also living you know his drug dealing operation extended into London Birmingham and in fact he was involved in you know other people it was his his consignments were being shipped to places like Australia as well so he was in it big time and uh, you know because it was a rural community any strangers that came into that community uh, and that included Eric and I when we first uh, drove in there and went to live there he treated them with suspicion and on one occasion we gave him a lift in our van we had an old battered transit van And uh, he came out with it and and he just said, hey, guys, what's the scam? You know, you're cops, aren't you? So, you know, we just had to laugh it off. But that was smiles, you know, he he lived by his wits. And uh, he he did challenges on that particular occasion. And undoubtedly, he was suspicious of us for a long time. But there were two particular incidents that changed, I think, changed his mind. Number one, we were having a a heavy drinking session one night uh, and uh, the landlord of the pub had called chime but we carried on drinking and uh, the local police officer came in in uniform and in a rather uh, nasty way sort of ordered us to get out there you know, so I'm drunk and I'm playing the part so I use a lot of bad language and I tell him to stick his truncheon in a part of his body that the sun can't reach so we then, I'm with Smiles at this particular time, and another guy, and the other guy lived locally. So, you know, this 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 copper, he comes back, and I'm still giving him grief, and we run off, and he runs after us, the copper runs after us, and uh, we hide in this local guy's place until the copper disappears. Smiles turns around to me, and he say, and, and he nicknamed me Cop Killer after that particular episode and i think that helped persuade him that i wasn't a cop or help persuade him to become less suspicious and then there was another incident where we were uh, we were up in liverpool and we met this canadian gangster we were offered a uh, uh, get involved in a in a deal involving substantial quantities of cocaine and i'm talking about many many kilos weight wise of, of cocaine and uh and Smiles got to hear about that. So towards the end of our time, infiltrating him and the community, Smiles actually came to me as, and, and what was trying to uh, score by uh, cocaine from me. So I think that was a measure of, in the end that we successfully persuaded him that they, that we weren't cops. You know? So, yeah. Um, wow.
1: What was your backstory, Stephen? Back
2: story was that uh, uh, Eric and I were looking for Eric's uh, brother who uh, got into a minor scrape with some minor drugs charge in England uh, and uh, he disappeared, he, he, he he'd, uh, absconded whilst on bail and he was supposed to be living with hippies in Wales uh, and that's, that explained our presence in that particular part of Wales that we were looking for Eric's brother And we explained our odd disappearances by the fact that we said that we dealt uh, in second-hand cars, buying and selling cars. We bought the cars at auction in Southampton and, uh, you know, sold them all over the place for cash. Um, And it was all nudge and a wink that we, you know, we weren't averse to doing a little bit of dealing. And, you know, we occasionally showed a little bit of cannabis that, you know, that we borrowed from the drug, from the police drugstore and this, that and the other. And then Eric was a dab hand. He was a, I was a city boy, you know, raised in Liverpool. And uh, Eric uh, was a country boy, raised in, in Gloucester. Well, Eric was a dab hand with a chainsaw, so we also offered to, lock trees and do this that and the other. Plus we had the van, so we did the old removal, like the like a piano that we the, we moved one day for one hippie, from one hippy, from one hippy's house to another. So you know that was kind of our backstory how we uh, assimilated ourselves into the into the community.
1: Wow! Yeah, and you did it very well. Um, I'm reading here that over one million LSD tabs were seized, and enough crystal to make six point five million more because of of your work. And after trial. Fifteen defendants were given jail terms, adding up to over one hundred and twenty years.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, including uh, including the guy that I befriended, this Smiles character, I keep mentioning. He got eight years, and uh, so the, the sentences range from the people at the top who were who were the chemists; they were manufacturing it, uh, and the people in charge. They got thirteen years. Uh, right down to uh, I think two years was the minimum sentence for kind of lesser dealers in the in the distribution network
1: and smiles you did have um a conversation with them or well a very short one after your cover was revealed or blown I I <laughs> and did. he said do you know hard feelings
2: he did he did that was in the shells after he'd been arrested and uh, because I I got so close to him, I I particularly wanted to have a word with him. I was was very tentative. I I was worried, actually, how he'd react. But I said to my boss at the time, I said, look, I've really got to go and speak to him. You know, just get it off my chest. So I went in to see him in the cell. And and at first, uh, you know, I cleaned up a bit by then. You know, I still had the beard and, and the hair was fairly long, but I cleaned up a lot and uh at first he looked at me and um, it was almost i could see i could almost see what he was thinking you know what, what's this guy involved in cocaine the cocaine dealer doing in a cell with me he's nothing to do with lsd and then the penny dropped he realized it was me uh, and we hugged each other like you know a great big man hug and, and he said to me he said uh, you know no hard feelings and i could I, and i'm not being melodramatic but my 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 eyes actually teared up You know, because I did actually like the guy immensely. You know, he he wasn't a bad guy or a violent guy. And, uh, you know, in a different life, a different world, I'm sure that we could have been the best of friends. I'm sure of that. So, yeah. yeah.
1: Do you ever think about him now, Stephen?
2: Occasionally. um, Yeah, obviously, something like this crops up and I, I think about him, but most of the time the answer is no i don't i mean it's kind of there as a distant memory you know because it was distant you know it's a it's a long time ago um you know i know the people that are behind the uh, trying to get the tv series done they've got this idea that it would be great that once it gets heard uh, you know that uh, you know, it would be great to get the two of us together in the same pub and have a beer or something. Yeah, you know? so you know, maybe that'll happen. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Know.
1: Wow, that would be a an interesting conversation. um <laughs> And you, you've spoken before, Stephen, about undercover policing. Uh, and you believe the reputation has been damaged, particularly because of Mark Kennedy, the undercover policing officer who. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you said his actions were absolutely disgusting.
2: Yes, they were. There's no, uh, there's no place for that type of, type of undercover policing activity in, a, in, a, in an area that is political and it's not to do with criminal activities. I mean, those people, it was a political movement. They were political activists, some of them. Some of the people that uh, Mark Kennedy and a, and a few others infiltrated, not only infiltrated, but I mean my my word, I mean, as we all know, it's public knowledge now that you know he actually fathered children by some of the uh, women activists, you know, I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. There's no place for it in undercover policing, and yes, it has got undercover policing a bad reputation, and that's why. To be quite frank, I'm delighted that the opportunity came along to co-write this Operation George book with Mark Dickens because it puts the uh, it puts the whole undercover policing uh, sphere, uh, operational sphere, into a different context completely. You know, that's what proper undercover policing is about. It's about catching and detecting and infiltrating organised crime gangs, whether they be paramilitary terrorists and murderers or whether they be big drug dealers violent drug dealers or you know gun runners people traffickers uh, terrorists uh, of any kind of description you know not just loyalists but I'm thinking about in the modern world you know with the uh, the whole thing that's going on with uh, jihad and all the rest of it you know it's uh, you know that's that's the place for uh, for proper, as I call it, proper undercover policing and how it should operate.
1: Brilliant, Stephen. So uh, you can still buy Stephen's book on Operation Julie. Here it is. Here.
2: You can indeed. the The ebook version, the Kindle version, looks slightly different than that. It's got a slightly new cover, but that's the that's the uh, the print version. So yeah, thanks Brilliant. thanks for the for the mention.
1: No problem. And moving on to your new book, which is Operation George. And for anybody who doesn't know, it touches upon the actions of an LVF gang. It focuses on Jim Fulton's arrest. He was an LVF terrorist. He's now locked up for 25 years in the Prison in Northern Ireland. And this book not only takes us inside that policing operation, and I have to just get the dates right, 1999 to 2001. Is that right, Stephen? Yeah, that's correct. That's
2: when yeah. the operation ran, yes. As, uh, yeah. as you know, uh, it, Rosemary Nelson uh, was, I, was murdered in 1999.
1: And, uh, yes, and that's what it was just about great to say. Your book doesn't only take us inside the policing operation. It takes us back a bit to what was happening in Northern Ireland and the reasons why Jim Fulton was of interest. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Loyalist Volunteer Force, or LVF, is an Ulster Paramountry group in Northern Ireland formed by terror leader Billy Wright, who was murdered in the Mays Prison in 1997. Uh, William James Fulton, who's known as Jim, was one of these members. He's now aged 53 and is serving a life sentence in MacGabrie Prison, Also in the book is the story of Muriel Gibson, a grandmother who was convicted of destroying evidence in relation to the 1998 LVF murder of Adrian Lamph. Tell me about Operation George and how, Stephen, you ended up writing this book with one of the undercover officers who was actually involved.
2: Yeah, uh, well, that's a great linking question because... Um, This is where we link in Operation Julie and Operation George because through another podcast, it's actually a four-part series on Operation Julie. Uh, And uh, can I mention the name of the podcast?
1: Of course you can.
2: True Crime Investigators UK. It's a uh, four-part podcast. Uh, They've done other podcasts too, but four-part podcast on Operation Julie. And Mark Dickens was listening to that podcast and uh, through various means through social media he made contact with me because it was quite clear that after we'd had an initial chat that he was uh, interested in somebody helping him write a book about Operation George, his experiences on Operation George So that's how it came into being. And uh, when we first chatted, uh, you know, rather discreetly and secretly through encrypted messages and all the rest of it, um, it was quite clear that the story he had to tell was fascinating, the story of Operation George. At that stage, that's when I started researching it. To be quite frank, I'd never heard of it before. I'd obviously heard of the LBF. I'd never heard of uh, Jimmy Fulton as a character, as mentioned or Muriel Gibson. I was aware of the LVF and uh, various other factors. I think I'd barely heard of uh, Billy Wright. But I started researching uh, Operation George, and that, of course, led me to the Rosemary Nelson murder inquiry, and that's how Operation George got started in, in, in the immediate aftermath. Yes, she is uh, uh rest in peace and um, that's how it got started after, after uh, rosemary nelson was was, was murdered with the car bomb uh, there were, obviously there were great great uh, yeah there we are terrible terrible uh, that was her bmw that was uh, that was blown up with her inside of it shocking but um yeah, uh, you, yeah, th- those pictures kind of throw me because you know one can only think about the the, the horrors of that particular uh, murder, uh, and uh, and then what what brought about um, Operation George. Uh, I, I, but to put it in a nutshell, uh, for anybody who, who who doesn't know, to put it in into a nutshell. Um, There was undoubtedly a lot of political pressure at that time in Northern Ireland. The then chief constable of of, of what was then known as the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, a, a man called Ronnie Flanagan, was undoubtedly put under a lot of political pressure because you know, th- there was this lobby in the United States uh, that, that was up in arms about uh, congressmen. Right. You know, questions mm-hmm. were being asked in Congress about prior to Rosemary Nelson's murder, about the way she was treated on the uh, on the uh, the Duncree marches, etc., etc., etc. And, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. and the, this political pressure was, was so much so, the FBI were called into. Uh, to liaise with the ruc and at a very early stage i think the guy's name was john guido an fbi special agent and uh, he 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 suggested that they bring somebody in from from the mainland from england to head up the inquiry into uh the the murder of rosemary nelson and that man was in fact colin Port who was then deputy chief constable of norfolk well he he, he was a career detective i say was because he's no longer a serving police officer but he was a career detective uh, uh, you name it he he, he he'd experienced it in terms of crime investigation uh, and he set up the uh, the uh, he set up a, a murder investigation team looking into rosemary nelson's murder in belfast uh And it soon became clear that uh, that Jim Fulton was an early suspect, uh, along with his brother, Mark Swinger Fulton. They were early suspects in in the Rosemary Nelson murder. And I must stress at this stage, there's never been any evidence to link uh, Jim Fulton in particular to that murder of, of Rosemary Nelson. I must stress that. But... It became clear that, that, that Jim Poulton had disappeared. In fact, he'd gone to California and, and rather stupidly he'd got arrested in California. I say stupidly because there was an incident where it's alleged that Tanya, Jim Poulton's right. wife, had discharged some firearms yeah. in California, a place called Murrieta that I happen to know quite well funnily enough. And and. Uh, Anyway, they were arrested, Uh, Jim Poulton and his wife were arrested on uh, uh, firearms charges, drugs charges, and uh, immigration charges. Uh, uh, Him being an early suspect in in the Rosemary Nelson inquiry, obviously, uh, I'm convinced it was Colin Port and John Guido from the FBI that were behind this. They thought, well, how can we get this guy back and try and set up an operation to try and find out what Jim Fulton knows, if anything, about the murder of Rosemary Nelson. So what they did, in in, in collaboration with the FBI, uh, Jim Fulton was deported, and he arrived back at Heathrow. And it was quite clear to Colin Port and Guido, and uh, no doubt others, uh, senior command in the RUC, that that running an undercover operation in Belfast or, or Lurgan, or anywhere in Northern Ireland, was totally out of the question for a number of reasons. Uh, the RUC, I, I'm going to say this politely, had its problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and people who, who know Northern Ireland a lot better than I do and know the history will understand. That that is code for, you know, there were certain elements of the RUC that were suspected of having links with with uh, loyalist uh, paramil- paramilitary paramilitary organisations and so on and so forth. So an undercover operation was never ever going to work in Northern Ireland. So what happened was uh, the team, the Operation George team as it soon became known they found out that Muriel Gibson had also disappeared from Northern Ireland and she was living in a in and B, a B&B, a bed and breakfast in Plymouth, Devon England So the idea was, and it was executed that somehow they would have to get to Muriel Gibson to persuade Jim Fulton to come over to England and if he did come over to England that's where they could set the trap the sting the undercover operation and that is basically what happened but Muriel Gibson uh, was when I say infiltrated right. uh, uh, what I mean is that the undercover officers including a female undercover officer called Liz um, that she was sent to Plymouth to get to know Muriel and she did and uh, and there were also another two undercover officers set up in Camborne in Cornwall so that Liz got chatting away got friendly with Muriel Gibson and Liz introduced a character called Neil who was actually also another undercover officer and uh, basically the story was that Neil was looking for a driver, and, and Liz kind of dropped hints that, you know Neil wasn't a, a straight-up businessman. He was a bit shady, a bit dodgy, you know. And uh, anyway, long story is, Liz is in contact with, with Jim Fulton, and uh, she persuades him to turn up in, in Plymouth because there's a possibility of this, a job driving for this, for this Neil character, Liz's friend. I don't think, reading between the lines, I don't think Jim Fulton too, took too much persuading because I think he knew life was difficult for him back in the province at that particular time after he'd come back from the United States because there was all sorts of stuff going on. And I think that he felt his life was genuinely threatened, which it probably was. Plus, the police, when he arrived at Heathrow, the special branch uh, as they had to do by law it's called an osman warning because there was some intelligence that jim fulton's life was in danger of being threats jim fulton was given an osman warning in other words you know you better watch your step because we've received intelligence that your late life is has been threatened so i think Jim Fulton didn't need an awful lot of persuading to get out of the province again but instead of going back to the United States which would would have been problematic for him seeing he'd just been deported he uh, um, ended up in Plymouth with, with, uh, with Muriel Gibson then he meets Neil Neil tests him as a driver takes him on as a driver and then over a period of time the kind of sucking Jim into this network, this uh, uh, this rabbit hole, as I call it in the book, like a you know Lewis Carroll type rabbit hole, where Jim ends up thinking that he's working for an organised crime group with Neil at the head. Um, you know, because they're planning these scams all over England. You know, uh, uh, hijacking uh, lorry loads of spirits, lorry loads of tobacco cigarettes uh they even planned a a cash in transit robbery but soon dropped that because they realized that at some stage maybe firearms would get involved and jim fulton and firearms was a no-no those two don't mix at all so um yeah and i think the i think my favorite story of all i really enjoyed writing the chapter in the book was the the work of art the purported stolen lowry where they actually managed to involve the undercover counterparts from Belgium uh, as a prospective buyer of the stolen Lowry. Uh, And another Belgian undercover officer was the the tester. He was testing the provenance of the stolen painting. And they all did this deal in a hotel in uh, somewhere in Middle England somewhere. uh, And Jimmy's jim is jim fulton's thriving on this because he at one particular point he was given the job of patting down these guys these belgian guys uh, who are supposed to be buying a stolen work of of art he was given the job of patting them down to see if they had any guns and i can't do the accent but i can imagine him turning around to the other other undercover officers saying oh great this is right down my street you know guns <laughs> you know so it, it was just it was just an amazing, amazing story, you know, and, and, and Mark was telling me the stories and you know, and my job was to with all the greatest greatest respect to Mark and I'm sure he doesn't mind me saying this, my job was to turn his stories into proper English. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and to actually what can be read and um, I know what's great about your book actually I know we're kind of going off topic here is the the start of the book where you've got all the different uh, slang words undercover <laughs> cop slang words all done yeah. and, 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 and described it's like, a, it's like a little dictionary which I found it was really interesting and one of the most interesting quotes in the book Um, and you've obviously written it and talked to Mark about this, was that just like Jim Carrey's character in the True Man show, Fulton's environment had been controlled and his life manipulated. He believed he'd been living cheek by jowl in the company of gangsters in Plymouth. In fact, he'd been living in a bubble, not of his own creation, which I thought was, I mean, wow. Yeah. Not a clue. Not a clue. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's uh, he didn't have a clue, and um, that's exactly. I think that encapsulates what the the whole undercover thing was about. And uh, actually, listening to you uh, reading those words back, I, I must give myself a pat on the back for writing them.
1: <laughs> it's very good. Yeah, yeah to, honestly, and I I mean it. I, I can see a lot of people taking a huge interest in this book, and they already have, Stephen. Um, I mean, it's not every day that you get to read about not only somebody like Jim Fulton being taken down and then say details, but I mean, this, I knew you've described this in the book, it was the most audacious undercover sting in the world.
2: I think so. I think so. I, 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 you know, there's, uh, you know, there's stuff gone on over the years, and you, you know, you think back to the state in particular, you think back to Donnie Brasco and all the rest of it but i think i think this particular undercover sting this undercover operation i think it's right up there with anything that's ever happened in the world i really do it's quite an amazing story and i feel proud and i feel privileged to be to be part of you know writing the story yeah uh, you know, i just i just thoroughly enjoyed i love writing the book and uh, you know i loved all the um, the two, you know the chewing and frying between Mark and I when we were collaborating uh, on the writing process it was uh, just brilliant I really enjoyed it and uh, and you know at the same time it was also it was sad as well you know I do say early on in the book very early on maybe in the first chapter that uh, you know that uh, as the authors that we do have the utmost sympathy and empathy with all the victims of all the terrible crimes that have been perpetrated uh in in northern ireland uh, for want of a better phrase it's one that everybody knows it by i'm going to use the phrase the troubles uh you know it's just a it's a tragic shame it really is it's and and, 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 as i've said to you before in previous conversation private conversations it's you know on a personal i I find it very sad because I find the people in Northern Ireland, the ones I've met, uh, you know, are very, very friendly, very hospitable people. I just love the place, you know, and it's uh, it's, it's it's kind of it brings home, really, rams home the sadness of it all uh, to me as an individual, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Stephen, and we are we're all lovely people. We've been through a lot, absolutely. and I mean. Th- I think you touched upon issues with policing and, and things here. Uh, we're still living that legacy. There there are still issues. We still have paramilitaries uh, over 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement. We're in a different place now, thank goodness. I thought it was a very touching uh, paragraph that you wrote on the last exchange Rosemary Nelson had with her friend just before she... She was brutally murdered. It was very touching, and I'm sure anybody reading it will, will also find it very touching. And uh, it was actually just Rosemary's anniversary on the 15th of March. She was murdered in 1999. And, I mean, no one's ever been convicted over a murder. Uh, hopefully someday somebody will, but at present not yet.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And thanks very much once again, a your kind words and... Uh uh, you know, it's 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 it, 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 it's it's almost it's impossible to to to, you know, feel what her husband and what her children must have been through since that uh, that terrible terrible incident. Incident. It's just unimaginable for me. Unimaginable. Can't. Uh, I just can't think to to what it must have been like.
1: The sectarianism that Jim Fulton displayed must have shocked officers i mean he's quoted in the book as saying to one officer they've got to shoot a catholic once a week about once a week and that's why they broke away and he's referring to the lvf Um, that's why the lvf broke away from the uvf because they weren't killing enough catholics
2: it is shocking and the officers must have found it shocking uh, not only the officers that uh, it was actually relayed to you know that were in the presence of jim fulton but the you know the people in the background the listeners you know in places were secret places where they were listening to the tapes the transcribers uh, you know civilian staff they must have all been shot to hear such uh you know and i describe it in the book as uh, as genocide and it is it is genocide there's no getting away from it um you know it's, it's just a shocking statement to to come out with and it shocked me and i must say this again on a personal note having been brought up in liverpool i was no stranger to uh, uh, sectarian problems you know we we had the uh um, we had the uh, july buffer the boy july 12th the 12th of july yeah we had the tw- we had the 12th of july marches in, in, in liverpool really
1: i didn't even oh,
2: realize no. that yeah, through through everton through everton Brow, and then at the end of the the march uh, you know they used to jump on a train at exchange station in liverpool uh, and get the train up to southport uh, and southport was just a drunken day out with um you know with the loyalist marches and you know as a kid i remember seeing them parading down the street you know so you know I, i'm no no stranger through my upbringing to uh, sectarian issues uh, and you know liverpool experienced it glasgow experienced it obviously nowhere near the same as as in northern ireland but we did experience it and i personally experienced it as i, as I say Having said all that, you know when I when I when I saw the things uh, read, heard the things that Jim Fulton had said about killing a Catholic away, I mean it's just unbelievable. You know, unbelievable. Yeah, it's um, yeah. There he is. Yeah, there. And
1: this is him here, Jim Fulton, who undercover officers got to know very very well. 50,000 hours of covert recordings, and he didn't have a clue, Stephen. Not a clue. In fact, you said in the book, and there's, I mean, I would just, I would advise everybody that they have to get the book. I don't want to go into too much detail because I don't want to spoil it, but there there are some funny moments in it because at yeah. one point he confided in one officer that he believed his neighbours were MI5 Undercover officers sent to spy him, and he was actually telling an undercover cop.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. I, I think one of the other again, not wanting to give out any spoilers. But I think the other one of the other funny parts was where um, where there was a, a, a police uh, was it a police helicopter or, or a plane that was up in the air, and uh, Jim Fulton's in a, in, in a lorry with an undercover officer with an undercover officer driving. And he turns around to the undercover officer and he's he's saying, oh, don't worry about the police. He said, I can smell them a mile off. (laughs) And he (laughs) he sat next to one who was driving the lorry, you know, and then there's the, you know, the police aeroplane. He's up ahead, you know, as a spotter as well. I thought that was quite funny. But, yeah, there are some humorous points in the book on what is a very serious topic, Um,
1: it had to yeah. have been a good thing that he was eventually behind bars because quite obviously it's oh. very dangerous full of hatred uh, and had With, I mean, without,
2: yeah without a shadow of a doubt and I think the, I think the other issue there, Patricia is that it was it was it was pretty obvious after two years that uh, that he wasn't going to say anything incriminating about Rosemary Nelson and that murder and in fact, he uh, he uh, he denied any involvement at all, uh, whether to undercover officers in the secret recordings or whether it was when he was being recorded in his home by the secret probes that were hidden away in the, in the house. You know, so it was pretty clear to Colin Port, who was running the whole show, the boss, that. Um, you know it was time to wrap up the truman show uh, you know that's another euphemism i use in the book calling uh, well you've already mentioned it jim carrey in the truman show and you know so it was pretty clear to colin port that it was time to wrap up the truman show because you know nothing else was going to be gained and, and obviously the the lawyers had obviously reviewed the evidence on the on the uh, secret recordings and decided that there was uh, uh, enough material and enough evidence there you know for the Crown prosecution service uh, to put it in front of a in front of a court and, and basically it was certainly enough to arrest him so arrested he was and then flown off to northern ireland and uh, and processed in the usual way and uh, then ended up in belfast crown court and it's still the, I'm still I'm told it was the longest trial in Northern Ireland's legal history.
1: I have read that. I have indeed. Though I, I know he may not have admitted any involvement, but Stephen, did undercover officers hear anything that would have pointed to those who were involved?
2: In terms of Rosemary Nelson?
1: Yes, Rosemary nothing, Nelson.
2: Nothing, absolutely nothing uh, uh, something i discussed with uh, with mark dickens on a number of occasions and it was pretty clear that there was there was nothing came out of the operation george investigation that uh, implicated uh, jim or uh, or mark swinger fulton in the death of uh, rosemary nelson and bear in mind that mark swinger fulton was also an invitee of the um, of the in the organized crime group in Plymouth. You know the undercover team because Swinger and Jimmy were uh, in a, a Chinese restaurant one night in Plymouth when uh, you know the re- when the whole conversation was recorded. But uh, yeah, no, nothing at all. Um, the only the only piece of material that I've ever been able to find is actually it's actually there in the public domain, and it's in the Rosemary Nelson. Public inquiry report, where um, the the report, the committee say that if the RUC had interpreted certain invitation, certain information a different way, in other words, it wasn't drug related, but it could well have been related to the bomb maker and and connected to Mark Swinger Fulton, then it it could have been interpreted in a completely different way. I mean, I I have no shadow of a doubt at all in my own mind that from the intelligence that I've read that is in the public domain that Mark Fulton in some way was involved in the bomb, the making of the bomb that killed Rosemary Nelson and was probably involved or instrumental in the placing of that bomb under her car. I don't think there's any two ways about that.
1: And Mark Swinger Fulton passed away in prison around 2002, so... Yeah,
2: yeah, that, that's right, and uh, we can only... It's like going back to what you said earlier, maybe one day there'll be some fresh piece of evidence comes up, crops up, that uh, will uh, will result in a, in a prosecution, successful prosecution of somebody for the you know for the for the shocking murder of, of rosemary nelson uh, i mean all murder all murders are shocking but um you know i've got the greatest of sympathy for for example for the Lamb family adrian Lamb family i've got the greatest of sympathy for them but when you see the photographs of that silver bmw what happened to her car when it was blown up when the bomb detonated and you can imagine what must have happened to that poor lady's body? Shocking, absolutely shocking. No, absolutely, yeah. yeah I, I'm almost without words to describe my feelings about that particular incident. Uh, just terrible.
1: And so, the sad thing is, she she was a human rights lawyer. You know, she was a human yes, rights lawyer.
2: Yeah, she was, and she was doing she was doing a very good job, and uh, you know. the trouble is with people with intelligence no matter what side of the divide if you want to use that phrase I I don't like using that phrase but people understand what I mean if I use that particular phrase you know I won't get philosophical about it but there shouldn't be a divide that's another argument Um, but you know she was only doing her work her job for people on, on one side of the divide there was nothing personal in it but for, for her she was highlighting things that were wrong and things were very wrong and the way she was treated by certain sections of the ruc at that particular time you know spat at and some of the invective that was aimed at her was was disgusting absolutely disgusting so and um, you know but again going back to my own experiences in liverpool when i was a young man you know, some of the young officers that, that I worked with when I was still in uniform uh, were f- were from Belfast, and in fact, some of them were re- some of them used to be B specials. So I w- I was used to that type of hatred, that type of invective. You know, uh, so you know that that part of of, of the story, uh, you know, of the troubles doesn't shock me per se because. I, I was used to that type of uh, idiotic hatred and idiotic and senseless uh, invective that was used on, on by you know on both sides of the divide. Uh, again, using that expression, because it's easier to to uh, use that than uh, you know explain at length that you know my own belief is there shouldn't be a divide. We're all living under the same roof, on the, in the same land. You know, we're all human beings and, uh, you know, I'm not preaching. I'm not going back to being a hippie and preaching love and peace. Well, I suppose I am in a way, but you know what I mean.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. Oh, you're bang on. So before we move on to the actual arrest of Fulton, let's talk about Muriel Gibson because she was also of interest here and was also covertly recorded in this operation. Yeah, she
2: was she was and uh, i think i've got to be honest i think that uh, i think that any any normal person reading the facts uh, uh, about operation george reading all about jim fulton reading all about muriel gibson i think they would come to the same conclusion as i have that muriel gibson was very lucky to get away so lightly she was sentenced to eight years in prison and uh, undoubtedly probably served four of those before automatic release. And uh, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you read and, and, and understand some of the things that she said in these secret, secretly recorded conversations and her close involvement in the murder of Adrian Lemp, she got away very, very lightly, in my my opinion.
1: From reading your book, it seems that Muriel Gibson has a lot that she could possibly divulge to bring a lot of people justice after losing people in their lives. To
2: she could, she could, she uh, the race. Race. I mean she she describes the immediate aftermath of method, uh, the Adrian Lemph killing and uh, it's quite clear to anybody quite clear to me and quite clear to anybody who who reads that part uh, whether it in my book or whether it's in the public domain that there could have only been one shooter and uh, I, I, I say that in the book, there could have only been one shooter and uh, she knows who that was and uh, and in fact um, Unfortunately, you know, the laws of evidence dictate that uh, unless she takes a witness stand and repeats what she said in the covertly secret recordings, if she repeats what she said about the shooter, uh, then it becomes evidence. And that particular individual could have A, been indicted and be convicted of the murder of Adrian Lamp. Uh, will that ever happen Uh, personally I doubt it unless Muriel Gibson has some kind of change of heart and changes into a uh, a person that thinks I've got to do the right thing Uh, is that being too idealistic I think it probably is to be honest with you Um, but that's what that's what it is it's uh, she could have Remedied a lot of the things that were wrong.
1: Yeah, Stephen, did you come across, or did Mark come across during this undercover policing operation, any issues with protected state informants? Was there? I mean, because it's it's been heavily reported here. I mean, there's been two recent police ombudsman's reports that released about the use of police informers who were actually a part of of paramilitary gangs killing people, and some of those those informers did kill people while working for police. Was that an issue during Operation George, or was that, I mean, it didn't crop up because it was an English-led investigation?
2: I think it was something that uh, the team themselves, uh, the Plymouth-based team, that were posing as the criminal gang i think it was something that they became to they came to suspect uh, they actually suspected that jim fulton could have been an informant for an ruc officer um and uh, in, in fact at one stage yeah i'm right in saying that colin port was uh, this was addressed to colin port and, Colin Port said, "No way, that's that's, that's that's not true." But there were so many, so many ramifications. That's not the right word. The IUC at that time was riddled with all kinds of shenanigans, political infighting, corrupt practices, etc., etc., etc. There's a lot of dodgy stuff going on so you know whether jim fulton was in the pocket of certain ruc officers i don't know but i've got to be honest from what i've from what i've read and what i've heard it wouldn't surprise me nothing would surprise me yeah. um, but but yeah the, the the state agent thing it's it, it's something that i it's something that I pursued at one time researching the book in, in relation to one particular individual. And uh, unfortunately, if, when you, as I'm sure you've got your own experience of this, when you try and get information through FOI, freedom of information, you may as well bang, you, bang your head against the brick wall. It's, it's, it's a total utter waste of time.
1: Yeah.
2: And I followed up another inquiry about a certain... Paramilitary, or he was a paramilitary at one time, who was supposed to have been arrested in a, in a big drug deal in England, uh, £200,000 worth of, of drugs, probably ecstasy. And I made a, a FOI, Freedom of Information, request of the Crown Prosecution Service in London and in Gloucester, because I believe it could have been Gloucester where this guy was arrested. In other words, what I'm drowning at, was this, was this para, para, paramilitary or ex-paramilitary being protected? Is that why the £200,000 drug charge disappeared? The bottom line, Patricia, is I don't know, because I, I could never get to the bottom of it, and it's uh, unfathomable. It really is. It's a black hole.
1: Yeah, it's a black hole. But Stephen, you—the experience you have—I mean, not only in policing and, uh, and legal and legal terms—is that unusual not to be able to get that information?
2: Sadly, I have to say that uh, it, it's it's it, it's not unusual. Uh, um, the, the 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 FIO procedure started off. Uh, You know, the the idea behind it is is, is good. It's a good idea. And it started off being quite open, to a degree, uh, unless there were specific and valid reasons why information shouldn't be disclosed. But what's happened over the years, Patricia, and, and it links into the Mark Kennedys of the world and the undercover policing inquiry that is, in theory, still going on in London and the metropolitan police in my opinion were responsible for this for this ncnd business neither confirm nor deny
0: Mm.
2: you know and that neither confirm nor deny it's like the covid of COVID 19 of 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 freedom of information regime it's what they all hide behind neither confirm nor deny you know it's 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 just so frustrating yeah and it is a black hole and uh
1: yeah it, yeah and there many many a time Stephen, <laughs> i've received it lots of times if i had a pound for every time i received it i'd be yeah, very rich yeah
2: yeah that's right you know and you and you have investigative journalists that i admire greatly people like rob rob evans of uh, the guardian you know a, a, and I'm sure people like Rob Evans would agree that when Freedom of Information first started off, that it that you could get hold of information to a degree. But I'm sure he will also agree with what I'm saying now that that now you can't. It's just an utter waste of time making a request in in many many uh, in, in, on many occasions. It's uh, it's sad, but it's a fact. So take us
1: to the day that jim fulton was arrested where did that happen
2: that happened in plymouth um <clears throat> it happened at his home and by that time he was living in uh, a a rented house in uh, in oh i can't remember near whitley in a, a district of plymouth and uh it had already been pre-arranged. The strike, as they call it in police parlance, had already been pre-arranged. It, it, you know, it was known the previous night that they were going to go around at dawn and arrest Jim Fulton at his home. And, uh, and in fact, it was one of the last tasks that Robbie was uh, asked to do was move Jim Fulton's car because Jim Fulton had been supplied with a a Renault Laguna that was all... Kitted out with listening gear, unbeknownst to Jim, of course, and uh, he had to move it because the tactical team had seen that it was it was parked the wrong way around. Um, you know, I'm not a firearms expert or a firearms tactical expert, but apparently, when they do these strikes, these arrests, and the firearms team are involved, they have to have the driver's door on a certain side. You know, it's like a safety factor or something. Well, it was parked the wrong way around, so Robbie had to go and ask Jim Poulton in the pub for the keys to the Laguna and move the car, which he did. Uh, uh, and that was it. That was that was that uh, was that was undercover officer Robbie's last night in Plymouth with all the other people. They disappeared, and the following morning, I'm guessing 5:30, 6:00 in the morning, whatever time it was, you know the. I doubt very much that the door would, there was a knock on the door. It was probably one of those ram things. They rammed the door in and arrested Jim at gunpoint, Fulton at gunpoint, and he was whisked off in a helicopter and taken to to Belfast, which is unusual, as I'm sure you're aware. Normally, if somebody's arrested in England, they're taken to an English police station, but not him. He was flown straight on to. uh, to Belfast
1: in a military also. helicopter, yes, military, and
2: military, you know, obviously for security reasons, but, um, yeah. yeah, so
1: that was it. So, um, and, and he um, cried like a baby over the Irish Sea, you say in your book,
2: he did. That's the information I have that he started crying like a baby. One of the reasons was he thought that, um, he was kind of being hijacked and he was going to be thrown out of the helicopter over the Irish Sea. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he
1: was I mean, yeah, he was definitely paranoid, but not paranoid about the the right people. um I, and I'm sure Mark Dickens is very thankful about that. And I, I, as I said, I don't want to go into too much detail about the book. It gives I mean, it's one of the best insights I've ever read into the taking down of a paramilitary terrorist Uh, and it really is and it's it's sad too that we don't get more books like this but it it is and i would advise everybody to go out and buy it um mr fulton was told of the charges he was told that um you know the gang that he was with was not a firm of gangsters it was actually um undercover police officers and basically his face fell and you have actually included in the book, Stephen, the entire trial, uh, Mr. Fulton's trial, uh, Muriel Gibson's trial. So, I mean, you've there's there you've covered it from start to finish, and it it's a it's, it's a great read, it really uh, is. I'm
2: sorry to interrupt you, there, Patricia. I must correct you on one thing. Uh, oh yes, it's not it's not the entire trial. The oh, enti- is it not? The entire trial would have taken another three volumes of books. Well, that's true, I had to yeah. redact the trial material into something that was readable and manageable inside one book so a
1: lot of work then
2: it was a a lot lot of work work. and that probably that probably the material about the trial is in the book probably represents about a third of the total material that is in the public domain and if anybody gets the book the public domain references are in that book if anybody's interested enough to read the whole law reports as to what happened. It's all in the book. all
1: And he was charged with uh, murder, attempted murder. I think there was almost 50 charges. His victim included the murder of of Elizabeth O'Neill, a grandmother. He was killed in a pipe bomb attack uh, on her portadown home in County Armagh in 1999. And her murder was said to Be fueled by sectarianism, because she was a Protestant in a mixed family.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's another very, very sad case. Uh, Fifty-nine-year-old grandmother, and she obviously instinctively grabbed hold of the pipe bomb which had been thrown into her home, and by instinct or whatever, she she kind of grasped it close to her, and the thing blew up, and uh, and that killed her. You know, so. Yes, another uh, very, very, very very sad. um, I mean, all murders are sad, as I said before. But, uh, you know, the particular circumstances of that, you know. it's uh, But, you know, some of the stuff that he was charged with, even some of the stuff that he was acquitted of, it was like kind of Wild West, you know, where they got hold of AK-47 type automatic rifles and were spraying bullets at uh, you know that prison officer's home. He was acquitted of that charge, but uh, you know it's kind of it's kind of like reading about the Wild West, or you know back in the Prohibition days of the United States, back in Chicago. You know where you've got uh, you know the gangs kind of shooting each other, spraying weapons all over the place. You know it's unbelievable, unbelievable. But so. Um, you know. Listen,
1: it's, it's definitely a book to read I'm just going to put it up here again So everybody can see And Stephen, West, I do that You can tell everybody where they can buy your book Where it's available So here we go, Operation George
2: <laughs> Yeah, it is And uh, it's uh, the easiest place to, to find it Is on Amazon uh, But if you want to buy it from a, a bookstore Then if you go to Amazon And you if you want to buy the print version Go to Amazon, take a note of the 13-digit ISBN number, give that number to the bookstore owner, and he or she will order it in for you. So no problem. If you don't want to buy it on Amazon, you you can buy it elsewhere. But in, in e-book format, it's only available on Kindle on Amazon. Thanks, Patricia
1: no problem Stephen and listen what are you doing at the moment are you working on any other books you've got I mean you've had a few not just Operation Julie and Operation George you've had quite a few
2: yeah I've written written—I've uh, written a, a, a lot of uh, crime fiction in relation to the uh, as well as the non-fiction books of Operation Julie and Operation George I'm actually writing um, I don't know what it is I seem to attract former undercover officers I've got another undercover officer that wants me, I'm actually helping him write a, a series of fiction books at the moment about undercover cops, surprisingly. Enough. So, um, I think the first book in that, would plan to make it a series. So, I think the first book in that series will be out <coughs> probably in a few months. <coughs> yeah.
1: You're busy. You're very busy. Again.
2: I am busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm busy indeed. So before
1: we go Stephen Where can people find you Do you have a website, are you on Twitter Are you on Facebook
2: Yeah they can find me on my website Which is uh, Stephen Is my name up on scroll People see the it spelling is, of the yes. Okay uh, My website is Stephen Bentley All joined up together now Gaps.info uh, Facebook Just type in Author Stephen Bentley Twitter is at Stephen Bentley8. Anything I've forgotten? I think that's it, really. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> Brilliant, Stephen. Thank you. A great chat. Good luck with the new book and keep in touch.
0: Planning for your next trip?